every time that the Nazis would meet, our guys would go in and beat the shit out of these Nazi bastards. Our guys would go in with baseball bats, monkey wrenches, brass knuckles, steak bombs to throw into the place so when they come running out, our guys were waiting there. What good did the mob do and what bad? Instant justice. You went to the powers to be because if you went through the system, the system did shit for you. Somebody tried to rape the guy's sister. It goes to the bosses. Bosses, he'll take care of that. Now, if you went through the system with the prosecution, the lawyers, it's an expediency. What you can learn from an old gangster, you can never learn. If you went to Harvard, Princeton, you have these geniuses that go to the best universities and they can't do shit. What was the ugliest part? You used to send two guys to kill and two guys to do the burial. Why? So the two guys they killed never knew where the body was. Can I tell you who the biggest organized crime is in the entire world? Who? The government. My guest today is a former gangster, author, entrepreneur, father, and a grandpa, and he wrote a book called The Chronicles of the Last Jewish Gangster from Meyer to Myron. Myron Sugarman, thank you for being a guest on Valuetainment. Okay, nice to be here, and thank you very much for having me. Yes, so look, I've interviewed a lot of Italian mobsters, gangsters, attorneys, you know, some gangsters from UK, some, we've had a lot of them, but never Jewish mobs. So if you don't mind educating myself on the audience on the history of the Jewish mob. Okay, I'll be glad to. So the Jewish mob basically starts at the time of the large immigration from East Europe in the late 1880s, 1890s. And of course, poverty, they come into the United States, they move into the cities, and they form the ghettos of the United States, whether it's Baltimore, whether it's Boston, New York, Brooklyn, Detroit, Chicago, Cleveland. And um, these, uh, uh, the, original, the original Jewish gangster was really, um, it was brutal. He was, he was, he was a brute. It was brutal. Uh, in fact, um, there's a book that I read many, many years ago that said 25% of the prisoners in the New York prison system were Jews. What were the crimes? A lot of the crimes were violence. What, what year was this? Probably at the turn of the 20th century. Got it. All right. And um, it was the, the name of the book was called The Rise and Fall of the Jewish Gangster, uh, Jewish Mobster, something like that. The, the interesting part about it, uh, Patrick, was that um, you, they were involved in, in, in all forms of, of shakedowns, violence, beatings, murders, and prostitution. Okay. All right. Um, the majority of the of the prostitute in in uh, that time were Jewish women. They'd come, they couldn't find their husbands, and the pimps would be waiting for them on the piers. Majority of the prostitutes in the twenties were Jewish women. Not twenties, late late eighteenth uh, uh, 1890s. 1890s. 1890s, okay. 1900s. Got it. Got it. Okay. So it was really brutal crime. Now the generation that comes up that was either born in the United States or had recently immigrated from Europe. Let's say, for example, Meyer Lansky, Benny Siegel, 
Lepke Bulkalt and my father's world and so forth. Some of them were born here and some were uh, born on the other side and came as young kids. Right? And I'm talking now post-1900. So these kids start as gangs. And what they want, it's control of territory and neighborhoods and so forth. And um, the control of the ghetto. They had a responsibility as well. And that was to protect the, the ghetto mm-hmm. from the uh, being invaded and beat up by kids from other ethnicities. And so the, the, um, the push cart vendors and the storekeepers, they would depend on these young kids to defend the neighborhood. The young kids were responsible to take care of the fathers, the uncles, the grandparents, the cousins, and everybody. That, that was the responsibility. The to other take care way of around. Them. Instead yeah. of parents, it was the kids. The kids that, okay. took, the kids that took a very good point. So... Um, so when there, there was a, a very, very well-known gangster from Newark. It's amazing. If I'll say to people, who is Abner Longies Wilman? If you didn't come from Jersey, you never heard of him. He was on an equal level with Meyer Lansky, Benny Siegel. Right? And with um, uh, Lepke Bullcalter and Murder Incorporated and so forth. But we'll get into that. So his name was Longy. And where did the name Longy came from? Is uh, came from the, when the old timers were being invaded by Italians or Irish or other ethnicities. They would holler in Yiddish, rift for the longer, call the long one, longer. So from the name longer came the name Longy, Abe Longy's woman. And he was six foot two, good looking guy. Uh, waxed rich during the Prohibition period, became known as the Al Capone of New Jersey. 75, 80% of the alcohol that came into Jersey came in under his rule. Again, this is still in the 1890s. No, this now becomes the time of the Prohibition. Got it. That, okay. Those kids that were gangs evolved into businessmen. But we'll get, I just want us, before we get to anybody, um, as the, as the young kids by the 1920, at the time of prohibition, because the law starts in 1920, you have um, uh, the old timers, one of them in particular, Arnold Rothstein. Arnold Rothstein was the brain. Now the brain was allegedly the guy that uh, fixed the 1919 World Series together with a an ex-Jewish prize fighter by the name of Abe Attell. This is White Sox against the Reds. They call it the Black Sox, Black Sox. or something like that. Yeah. Right, right. It was the Chicago Black Sox yep. scandal. Yep. We're living in a day and age. If I tell people what I'm going to tell you now, they're surprised. But we had thousands and thousands of professional prize fighters. And it, up until the middle of the 1930s, one-third of the champions of the world were Jewish. Up and until be, the 1930s, one-third of the prize one champions of the were Jewish. Of the world were Jewish. So, and, so very different Jewish reputation then than it is today. Completely. Night and day. Completely. Feared, respected, money makers, racketeering, the original mobs. And it, it, it almost seems like when you study the history, they, they, they almost took in and they shared their secrets and they trade secrets with the Italian and the Irish 
uh, uh, model. So we'll get, we'll, yeah. we're, we're, we're going to talk about Arnold Rothstein. So Arnold Rothstein, uh, he came from, a, uh, he didn't come from the ghetto. He came from a middle-class Jewish family, very well respected. And he himself wanted to be an outlaw. Um, he's the one that actually, in fact, is responsible for the modern day mob. Uh, he, he, he was the original um, money guy for bootlegging in New York. It meets, uh, we, we need young kids to, re- to protect our convoys. So go to the gangs in the, in the ghettos. And if he spotted somebody with potential leadership, like Meyer Lansky or like Lucky Luciano, he schooled them. And he showed them, you're going to make more money with this than you're going to do with this. Stop being thugs. Now you've got an opportunity to make a lot of money through prohibition. Everybody wanted whiskey. Everybody wanted alcohol. So he becomes the father of modern, of the modern mob. Uh, he got killed uh, because he um, he ref- he walks on a on a on a uh, card game where he claimed that the game was fixed. They shot him. He died with the name of the of a shooter on his lips. He it was true to that code. He died, and now you had the new guys take over. The 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 connection between the Jews and the Italians. I was talking to this young fellow that you have here today, and I explained the common interest was making money. Lucky Luciano had the the brains to see that money could be made with the Jews. And Meyer Lansky understood we can make money with the Italians instead of knocking our brains out with each other. Let's do it. The Italians, however, up until 1930, 1931, they were controlled by two forces. It was called the Casta Mamari Wars. The wars between Joe the Boss Masseria and Salvatore Maranzano. They fought over the control of the Young Turks. The young Turks being Lucky Luciano, Frank Costello, Joe Adonis. Um, and so the competition was between those two forces from the old black hand. They were xenophobic, meaning that they wouldn't. We're from Sicily. We're from this part of Sicily. We don't want to even do business with guys from Calabria, from Naples. and Business with Jews? Forget about it. Forget about it. We don't do business with Jews. They were xenophobic. Can, can you give me an idea for, for us today? Okay, yeah. So we're not there at that time. You, you, you come from, you're a, you said January 12th, uh, 1938? 30, okay, so you, you've been around the block. You have this. The question I want to ask you is the following. So... You say Jews and Italians. There was uh, some friction between the two. Who would you compare that to today? Is there a comparison to make that to today? Yeah. The, uh, over the period, over the period of post-war, uh, World War II, uh, you had uh, competition, and it's very interesting. Good question. You had competition between um, Cubans. Well, they were the new boys on the block post-Castro, post-Batista. Uh, so when the Cuban mob came here, it was formed, they called themselves La Cooperación. They went toe-to-toe with the Italians over the number holes and over the, the numbers business in New York to the extent that they were burning down each one's number holes 
And then ultimately, there was a declaration that he sat down, they had to sit together. The boss of the Cubans was named Jose Miguel, Jose Miguel Batley. And he sat with Fat Tony, and they worked out a peace agreement. The Albanians and the Italians, but it's always the Italians, the Russians and the Italians. But ultimately, the Italians, they have, these, they have the structure and the power, whether it's Puerto Ricans, whether it's Dominicans, and so forth and so forth. During that time when Lucky, you know, there's you know, Costello himself banned, you know, Meyer, they're sitting there and, you know, uh, Rothstein's kind of giving them a, uh, you know, formula. Here's how you do it. Here's how you make your money and don't let the two. So in order to do that, they had yeah. to kill Joe, the boss, Masseria, yes. and they had to kill Salvatore yes. Maranzano. So the first one they took out was Joe, the boss, Masseria, in Coney Island, one Jew and three Italians. Bugsy Siegel, together with three Italians, went and did the hit. Before Joe, the boss, Masseria, could eat that pasta vazula Bianca. It was... They ruined his appetite. They killed him. Yeah. Then they had to take care of Salvatore Maranzano. In that particular case, Lucky Luciano, and it's a good story. He goes to Meyer Lansky and he says to him, Meyer, give me four year guys. Give me four Jews. Because Salvatore Maranzano will never recognize four Jews coming in dressed as IRS agents. All right. So Meyer Lansky is using four, four Jews, um, Bugsy. Uh, I think one of the guys from Dutch Schultz's outfit, I always said Louis Rush from downtown. And the fourth guy was um, Sam uh, Red Levine. All right. That was Meyer Lansky's favorite shooter. Now, My Sam uh, Red Levine what was a bit of a religious He was a bit of a religious Jew. Yeah. He wore a kippah, all right, ate kosher. And used to tell Meyer Lansky, don't give me an assignment on Shabbat unless it's absolutely necessary. He wouldn't kill anybody on Saturday unless it had to be taken care of, all right? So after they killed those two guys, emerges 1930-31, the, the commission and the new crime, the five families and so forth and so forth. That's where Lucky Luciano really gets the respect of everybody. To bring the five. So, because in, in fact, it was Joe the Boss Masseria that kidnapped um, Salvatore Lacania. It takes him to his warehouses and threatens him that if you don't come with me, I'm going to kill you. And Lucky Luciano, it was the name Salvatore Lacania at the time, the original name of Lucky Luciano, says, No, I'm not going with you. They sliced him up, left him for dead, and that's how he got the name Lucky. He was lucky to survive. That's when he went to, to Meyer and to Benny, to Bugsy, and says, guys, God bless you. We'll never, we'll, never, we'll never succeed as long as we're under the limitations of the repression of these old xenophobic dinosaurs. Got to get rid of them. So they got rid of them. And that's where the Jews and the Italians had a good understanding an excellent understanding that we're going to cooperate and cooperation means more money. All right. Because violence is no good. Violence interferes. That's why when I was telling you the story between the Italians and the, and the, and the Cubans, see this Jose Miguel Batley was a hero in the Bay of Pigs. He was one of the commanding officers of that unit four, eight, six, three, or whatever that was that 
was part of the invasion of Bay of Pigs. He was a CIA guy. So when he came back to the United States, uh, they were, the deal was negotiated so that uh, money and medicine went to Cuba to release the guys that were locked up, the prisoners on the Bay of Pigs. Jose Miguel comes back and forms what's known as La Corporación, the corporation, all right? And they start getting aggressive in terms of putting out the, um, the um, uh, buying the number holes. Number holes meaning the illegal lottery, all right? Now, my involvement, my friendship was with everybody because I was the, the, um, the founding father of the gambling machine business. I brought back the slot machines from the time that LaGuardia knocked them out in 1941, eliminated Meyer Lansky and Frank Costello. I, in 1977, started to put out the first slot machines again. Um, I was a pioneer. So people say to me, where did you get the idea? Where did you get the balls to do something like that? I said, well, I used to go all over the world. I've been to 70 countries. I speak every language on the face of the earth, and I did business all over the world which I learned from my father. My father was in the jukebox and vending and cigarette machine business going back prior to 1938. His original partner was Doc Stature and Abe Green. Doc Stature was the original partner with that gentleman I mentioned before, Longies Wilman. By the way, Longies Wilman waxed extremely rich during the time of prohibition. And, whack, and he was one of the big financiers of the Hollywood movies. Uh, he had a love affair with Gene Harlow. He made a great success out of Gene Harlow. The, uh, the, uh, she was the, the Marilyn Monroe of her time. So um, Doc Stature was the original partner of my father and Longy's Wilman, they split it. Longy took the cigarette machine business and my father's was the jukebox business. And how did Longy take the, we had Murder Incorporated. People just, I'm sure a lot of people are gonna be watching this and say, I never knew all of this stuff. The Jews were that tough. We had as many shooters and maybe more than the Italians. We had so many guys that were prize fighters. Another thing, in the 1930s, all right, this is a fantastic story. And nobody knows about it. With the rise of nationalist, socialist ideology in Germany, they come to the United States. We had a guy by the name of Fritz Kuhn, K-U-H-N, all right? He declares himself as the Hitler of America. And he starts to rally um, and bring together um, the recent immigrants that came post-World War I after the defeat of the Kaiser Wilhelm. Uh, we had a tremendous amount of Germans that came to the United States. Newark, New Jersey was originally a large German population. We had beer gardens. The, they called themselves the brown shirts, all right? And brown shirts. The brown shirts. Brown shirts. All right? And it was called the Bund, B-U-N-D which means the organization in, in German. And they would start beating up on Jews. My father was part of a, an organization called the Minutemen. The Minutemen were all under the supervision, or all under the administration of Longies Wilman. 
And they formed an organization called the Minutemen, which in a minute's notice, just like in the Revolutionary War, you would have men available in a matter of a minute to go fight the British. Our guys went to fight the American Nazi Party. There's a book called the, the, the Nazis in Newark, written by a dear friend of mine, Warren Grover, that relates exactly every time that the Nazis would meet, our guys would go in and beat the shit out of these Nazi bastards, all right? And this went on throughout the entire 1930s. Meyer Lansky took on the Nazis in um, Yorkville up on First uh, Avenue and 86th Street. Um, beat the shit out of them up there. It went on in, in, in Minneapolis, in Chicago, Define, define beat the shit out of them. What does that mean? What does beat the shit out of them? Our guys would go in with, with baseball bats. They'd go in with monkey wrenches, with brass knuckles, stink bombs to throw into the place. So when they come running out, our guys were waiting there. All right. Rising anti-Semitism today, people say, oh, my God, you know. But in that time, it, Jews were responding to it. The, the mob in Minneapolis, Dave Berman... Um, Herman Pastor, Sam Turan, wherever the, the, the Silver Shirts, another anti-Semitic organization would meet, our guys were there to beat the shit out of them, all right? In Chicago, there was a very famous prize fighter, triple crown champion, hero at Guadalcanal by the name of Barney Ross, very great American hero. At fought at Guadalcanal when he was in his 30s. Um, he was a hero at Guadalcanal. In the time of the Nazis, uh, they beat up, they fought the anti-Semites, uh, the Jew haters in Chicago. One of the guys that, that fought together with Barney Ross was Jacob Rubenstein. Some people say, well, who the hell was Jacob Rubenstein? So let me make it easy for you. Jack Ruby. is a son of a bitch, Jack Ruby. Yeah, he was he was a, a Jewish hero. All right, bit of a new crazy guy, but uh, he was a Jewish hero, Jack Ruby. He fought together with the, with all the Jews to to defend against anti Semites. How different is how how different was the Jewish community in the '30s versus today? So when you're hearing it, hey, anti Semite, you know, hey, you know, who you guys are going out there fighting, beating the shit out of everybody, versus today. You hear the same message and criticism. How different are the communities between those 80 years? Well, I think the, the, the economics was so much different. Today, uh, for example, um, the, 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 the attacks on anti-Semitism today in the United States are against identifiable Jews, meaning people that cover their heads, black suits, uh, beards. They're identifiable, and they're in the inner cities. They're sharing geography, all right? Let's say whether it's Williamsburg, whether it's Brown Heights, Borough Park, and so forth and so forth. They're being attacked. The Jews in the suburbs haven't really felt it yet, all right? Because nobody's going into the wealthy suburban neighborhoods and attacking Jews there, all right? There's the anti-Semitism hasn't spread to that point. The question you're asking me about 80 years ago is that we everybody was sharing territory in those days. All right. So 
whether you were identifiable or not, you knew that this was a Jewish neighborhood. And there was the, the question of, well, we're going to go in there uh, and we're going to attack Jews. Right? And so there was a need for that kind of defense. Uh, going back to the names you mentioned, and by the way, I want to, I want you to finish the story about yourself in 1977 when you said you were doing the slot machines and that's kind of how you brought it up. You were a pioneer. How big did that get and what kind of money were you making at the peak? It was so huge. It was so gigantic. They should build a statue for me because I made a lot of guys rich. All right. Zillions, you guys, what we were doing was we were taking, we, we started with slot machines and evolved into video poker machine and that just broke everything open and when the technology changed and we had a bill acceptor that you could put a you could start putting ones fives tens twenties oh my god big deal oh my god oh my god you'd have to go collecting coins you were collecting now bills so we calculate that at certain point in history there were no f- fixed figures, but between the fellows that were manufacturing, supplying, and 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 uh, they could have been two hundred thousand machines throughout the entire city of New York. And again, people say, oh, "I never saw it." Well, how are you going to see it? Because if you're living on Park Avenue, you're not going to see it. But if you were living in Washington Heights, you walked into every bodega had slot machines in the back rooms. 200,000. Wow. We figured 200,000 and figure each machine average approximately $500 per week per machine. So take 200,000 machines and multiply it by $500. Now, 50% went to the store owner and 50% went to the operator. That business flourished for years but until it became too uh, competitive, as it became super competitive, that's when the that's where the the um, conflicts began. So that's a hundred million a week. Fifty million went to the store. Fifty million. You mean to tell me you guys were doing fifty a week? So that was between a million, uh, endless number of operators. I wasn't the only operator. I was the the grandfather of it all. All right, but. Everybody went into it. Italians, Dominicans, Puerto Ricans. I got what you're saying. Russians, okay. Israelis. Got it. Everybody. So went everybody in. was kind of sharing that together, the 50 a week that was coming in. How much of that 50 was going to you at that time? Oh, uh, probably uh, maybe, well, I had New York, I would say, um, between sales, operation, over a hundred thousand a week. Yeah. So you're making a hundred thousand a week in the eighties. Yeah. And what's your life like at the time? I mean, you listen, even off camera, I watch you, you have charisma, you're charming, you're mad. You got, you, you can use the words. You're very yeah. well-spoken. So, so how was your life like? So I'm a bit of a, a unique kind of a character because, um, I never, I, I never went, higher than in terms of the, the kind of lifestyle and you know, country club, none of this. I'm a, I'm a street guy. I'm a educated street guy. One of the most educated in terms of everything, Jewish history, world of events, current and so forth and so forth. So I pursued a lot of that as far as life gets But concerned. you were not living a lavish lifestyle. No, the ladies, the party and all that stuff. I'm married to an old school Jewish girl from Buenos Aires whose family was from Poland. And she, 
If we would have told, if we would have told her, come here today, Patrick is going to interview you. She would, she would, she'd run to the other side of America. Why, why is that? She, What's, is she, she old want school? She wants nothing. She don't want none of this. Well, was she a strong personality though? Very strong. Okay. She worked in a slot machine business in Buenos Aires as the bookkeeper. That's how I met her. Got it. Got it. So during this time when you're making that kind of money, did you ever get caught? Did you do time? Did you ever get in trouble or no? I had three state cases and three federal cases. I was a revolutionary. Every time they locked me up, I was back the next day opening, doing business. Got it. I was just a defiant sort of a guy. And um, I did time. I, um, the last case was a federal case. I had a federal case in Washington, D.C. You'll get a kick out of this one. The name of the judge was Harold Green. Harold Green was the guy that broke up the ATT monopoly, and he had the Iran-Contra affair. He was the judge in that. Wow. So he was my judge. I get locked up with an old-time mob guy by the name of Joe, Joe DePossum Nesline, right? for promoting slot machines. That Joe, Joe was probably a little bit senile at the time. He introduced me to an undercover FBI agent. And I'm going all over Washington, D.C. and going to black locations. Come on, bro. You put my machine in. He said, okay, Pop, I'm going to argue with you. You look like you with the man. I said, now, of course I'm with the man. That's, you're putting machines. I'm going to put machines here, put machines there. Meantime, this FBI agent's all wired up. I get locked up. All right? Harold Green is the judge, and the prosecutor is a... Young Jewish woman, uh, I'm, I'm being real kind about it. She falls in love with me. Right? She's in, enchanted with me. And if she ain't going to screw me one way, she's going to screw me the other way. She says, you're the Meyer Lansky of our time. And you know what? I'm going to prosecute you. I'm going to get my bum, bum, bum. So my my kid cousin was my lawyer and he says to me we had a plea bargain there was no way i was going to win this particular case the fbi had me under uh, so um my kid cousin says to me get in touch with your friend simon wiesenthal the nazi hunter so i contact dr wiesenthal he says i'm in trouble he says what do you need i said need a letter he said no problem he writes a letter to judge green and he says, this is the man that helps me pursue Nazi war criminals in South America. Right? He's my man. It's in my book, the letter that Wiesenthal writes to, uh, the judge. to Judge Green. Judge Green turns out that he is an escapee from Nazi Germany. He was a Kennedy Democratic Party wow. appointee. Interesting. Right? So he gets the letter from, from Simon Wiesenthal and... Cause this girl, I don't want to hurt her feelings or damage her terrible reputation any worse than it already is. And he says, lady, he says, um, what am I going to do with this letter? She says, the letter's false. So I, it's counterfeit. She says, go prove it. Anyways, to make a long story short, she runs back in. She spoke to somebody. She said, how do I know it was Simon Wiesenthal? The judge says, get the hell out of here. You called him or he called you? She says, no, I called. Get out. Get out. That letter's authentic. All right. Day of sentencing, as we plea bargain, the door opens in the chambers of the law of the uh, uh, court. 
And uh, there's a girl comes out, and she's smiling at me. My kid cousin says to me, he says, Cuz, you know that girl over there? She's smiling at you. Listen, Cuz, that's not unusual. I get smiled at all the time by young, pretty women. Um, anyways, go in front of the judge, and in my sentencing report, it says, Mr. Sugarman is a close, intimate associate of Vincent Jimmy Blue Eyes Alloy. My kid cousin says to me, cuz, you really know Jimmy Blue Eyes? So I never met the man in my life. He says, but it says, cuz, I'm telling you, I never met Jimmy Blue Eyes. All right. So um, this prosecutor, she says to Judge Green, she says, uh, uh, oh, the Judge Green says, by the mere mention of a few Italian-sounding names, the government has failed to convince Mr. this courtroom that Mr. Sugarman is a member of organized crime. Anyways, he gives me five years probation. Right. Uh, two weeks later, I get a phone call. Billy Kane, it's Memorial Day weekend, uh, 1997. 19, no, 1987. Meet me at the Bayway Diner in Elizabeth. I meet him at the Bayway Diner. So that pretty little girl was uh, my half sister. She's a judge. She was Judge Green's. Uh, Billy Kane worked. He worked for the Gambino brothers on 18th Avenue, fixing the slot machines. He liked me. He says, "Oh, tell this sister you tell Judge Green. He's such a good guy, this Myron. He teaches all the slot machine uh, operators how to rig slot machines so that the jackpots never." <laughs> So the jackpots never what? Never pay out. <laughs> so anyways, um, a few years later, I'm in a, a, a Gaslight uh, restaurant, a Chinese restaurant in Miami, in Miami, in Miami Beach. It was a gal who was Chinese girl from Elizabeth, New Jersey, Christine Lee. She owned the place. And I'm wearing with all, all the old timers. And so one of the people tell me, you know, oh, look at that. Who's at the table there? Uh, I don't know. What it is. You don't know who that is? Jimmy Blue Eyes. Jimmy Blue Eyes. Mm, interesting. Now, come on. He knew your father. Let's go over. I'll introduce you. Nah, let him. He's with a woman. Let him enjoy his dinner. <laughs> so about two more years later, a fellow, very good guy, Robbie Margolis, says, Myra, meet me at the Hilton Hotel. We're going to have lunch today with Jimmy Blue Eyes. So fine. Now, uh, he show, he's late. He doesn't. Robbie goes downstairs to make a phone call from the phone booth. Who walks in? Jimmy Blue Eyes. I run over. Jimmy, how are you? He said, who the fuck are you? <laughs> I said, Jimmy, what do you mean, who are we? I'm your close, intimate associate. He says to me, are you fucking drunk? I never met you in my life. And then I told him the story about how on the, uh, the sentencing report, it says that Myron Sugarman is a close, intimate associate of Jimmy Blue Eyes. Listen, the government does what it's got to do, and we have to do what we got to do, and that's life. And you take it with a grain of salt. Your experience, who was dirtier over the years, the government or the mobsters, the gangsters? Both. Who was more creative? Gangsters. The, 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 what you can learn from an old 
gangster. You can never learn if you went to Harvard, Princeton, Pennsylvania University, Wharton School of Business, and so forth. There was an old timer by the name of Jake Mohawk from Newark, a bookmaker. And he used to say, you see these guys over here? Um, they didn't even graduate sixth grade. And they have the ability to sit down, right, and negotiate a peace agreement. You have these geniuses that go to the best universities, Georgetown University, go to this one, School of Diplomacy, and they can't do shit. He says, isn't it amazing? These old timers, without any education whatsoever, can sit down and come to a, an agreement, shake hands on it, and the handshake is worth more than all the papers on the face of the earth made by the greatest lawyers. So from that particular point of view, it's quite a story. I mean, I've been to many, many sit-downs, and of course, it's very interesting. I was with a guy, the, the, my grandson that I call Louis Dreeke, that's the guy I was with from Patterson, New Jersey. Super professional, super professional. So when we used to have a sit-down dispute over territories and so forth and so forth, it was wonderful. You could not have a discussion until you had your bowl of pasta, your bread, your olive oil, your olives, and then your wine, and then your espresso coffee. And in the process of that hour and a half before you would start talking business, what would you talk about? Well, we talk about baseball, you talk about broads, you talk about boxers, you talk about prize fighters. You would talk about nothing that we were ready to talk about. Now, when the plates were cleaned and the waiters took away everything, then starts the, um, the procedures. Right? And it went like this. Gentlemen, remember, we're not lawyers. All right? If it could be said in 10 words, don't use 11. Number two, they put erasers on the back of pencils for the purpose of erasing a mistake. Number three, what can never be erased is a lie. Do I make myself clear? Gentlemen, let the proceedings begin. You brought the beef against this guy, you go first. And the, the, these old timers, they knew how, they were great to watch them and to negotiate back and forth and so forth and so forth. And at the end, everybody, um, I had a major sit down two times. And the last time was with, um, each time was with a fellow by the name of Jimmy Brown. Jimmy Fiala, that was the acting boss of, Gambi of Gambino after John Gotti went to jail. Got it. Right? He was fabulous. He was on the other side. He was uh, Gambino. I loved that old man. Um, at the end, I said something that struck a real positive chord with him. I told this guy, anytime you need my mechanics, you call me before you take them on your own. Right? Jimmy Fiala, he says, he turns to his guy and he says, I like this fucking Jew, all right? He's a smart fucking kid. And then he turns to me, so what do you want, kid? What can I do for you? I says, well, you know, Mr. Brown, he's don't call me Mr. Brown, you call me Jimmy. 
I said, you're smoking some nice cigars today. He says, you like them, huh? Here you go, kid. He grabs a bunch of cigars and he tells Louie Red, you're lucky you got this kid. This kid is good. He's good. He's good. Because I wasn't greedy. And I understood the rules, the regulations, and so forth. And you, life is very fascinating in that world. Everything's, you have to be super honest. There's an old song that was a... a what was the the, um, the kid from from Minnesota, Jewish kid, that Zimmerman? Uh, I can't even. Bob Dylan mm, had Bob a song. Dylan. Yeah. Where the words were, "If you're going to be out, you're going to live outside the law. You better be honest." And that's the rules as far as life is concerned within that world. Now, is there treachery? Is there deceit? Is there breaking of honor and so forth? Yeah, yeah. It's human. It's all part of the human process. So, um, you ask the question, as far as the government is concerned, they got all the power, all the time, all the power, all the strength, all the witnesses and so forth. So that when a guy would go to trial, right, he was dead. He had a 3% chance of winning. It's 97% chance that the government's going to win in the trials. So that's why the plea bargain. Everybody plea bargains. That's right? a casino. That's a good uh, odds on your end. The house wins. They got it all. Yeah. They have it all. And if they don't have it, it's just like that, like the sentence report. Yeah. Let, let's go back. I got a few things I want to cover with you. And we'll be, you know, we'll wrap up here shortly. So going back to the most powerful Jewish gangsters of all time. So if you ask the average person, they're going to say who? Meyer Lansky is going to come up. Lepke's going to come up, who made a lot of money in racketeering, what he was doing, but he was a family man. He rarely drank, didn't do drugs. He was a guy that was, uh, you know, pretty steady. And then you go hear about Ben Siegel, strong hit man, tough guy, good looking, good with the ladies. Virginia Hill kind of, you know, uh, uh, caused the fall for him. Who else would you put on the list of uh, the most powerful Jewish mobsters of all time? And what did each of them have that was unique uh, compared to their peers? So there is no Jewish gangster anymore. So I, I really, I am the, the tail end because a Jewish, a real Jewish gangster on that level, they were also patriots, American patriots and Jewish patriots. It wasn't just the question of money. Meyer Lansky, for example, Longies Willman, um, they fought the American Nazi party. They cooperated with the United States government in operation on the world in World War II. And they supplied weapons and arms to Haganah and to Ergun to help create the state of Israel post-World War II, uh, pre-state uh, in Palestine, pre-state Israel. That's the reason why I was involved deeply with Simon Wiesenthal, um, so that I could do my share of... Um, let's say, participation as far as Jewish, uh, beyond, above and beyond. So it wasn't just a question that they were protecting the neighborhood or protecting the Jewish community and so forth. It went beyond that. It was a, a tremendous amount of patriotism that was not, people are going to watch this as, oh, kind of patriots. Eh? They were gangsters. They were this. There's a, a Talmudic, Wisdom that says life is not either black and it's neither white. It's all shades of gray. And everything as far as life is concerned, there's no way that you're going to have it specifically black 
and specifically white. You're going to have it of all different shades. That's the human existence. You want perfect truth? When we go up to heaven, you know, that's, that's perfect truth. When you're, when you're dying, you close out. Great. A lot of great. Um, you know, uh, uh, I've spoken to uh, Sammy and we've had him on and we've done a lot of different things together with uh, our, our interviews. Uh, and now he's got his own channel. He's doing stuff. Michael Francis, Kalata, Phil Leonetti, Ralph Natali, Oscar Goodman, a lot of these different personalities. Uh, did you ever have any dealings yourself with Gotti or Sammy Gravano yourself? or S- S- Sammy would remember me. We, we met... <laughs> And a big, big sit down, and um, it was an Italian restaurant. I think it was called the Sicilian on Second Avenue Nineteenth. Uh, it was funny. Funny. It was. It was. It was completely closed off that day. It was like a. It took me four cars. They drivers took changed cars. So that by the time we got to the place, uh, everybody in the place was a gangster. Right. And Sammy the Bull was the moderator that day. And uh, I was brought there because there was going to be a major um, combination of the Genovese and the Gambino family. They're going to put together a slot machine operation, 2,000 machines. And um, I was uh, asked the question if I would be able to uh, organize and administrate it. And I said that the risk is sounding immodest. I'm the only one that could do something like that. Louis read the buttons are popping off his shirt. He says, that's my man. That's my man. Jimmy Brown says, I told you that kid is good. So Sammy the Bull, I met him. On all of your interviews, it's very impressive. All of them, all, most of these, all that I've watched, these guys are very candid. They're very, very honest about their feelings, sentiments, and so forth and so forth. It's very, very what was, good. What was, You're good. You're good. You bring out the best of these guys as far as honesty is concerned. I, I appreciate that. What was the biggest thing you noticed from Sammy? Uh, when you said he was a moderator, did he use humor? Was he, was he, did he have presence? Was it intense? Was it calm? What was his approach when you saw him? Low key. Low key. Low key. Yeah. Okay. Low key. There was nothing, there was nothing ostentatious about the man. He just was strictly business. Gentlemen, we're here. What's this uh, with slot machines? Who's this one guy? This uh, issue of garbage, issue over this, issue over that, and so forth and so on. So it was basically, again, you were sitting at your table, your Genovese table, and other guys would be sitting at Gambino table. And whatever the issue was, ours was slot machines. So you get called to the table. And Sammy was strictly a moderator, strictly. Was, gen- he, was he a feared guy at that time? Did people fear him? I was told by my by my driver, by Louis Red's driver that took me there. He says, this guy's dynamite. That was the expression he used. He says, this guy is dynamite. Referring to Sammy. Sammy's from Gambino. He's not from Genovese. My guy tells me that guy is dynamite. That's the only experience I had as far as he's concerned. I knew all the... the you had um, Ralph and, Nat- and Natalie. You had uh, Tommy Leonetti. Um, Phil Leonetti. What, and, 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 uh, what's his first name? Michael. Michael. Yeah, uh, Francis. Not, no, Leonetti. Oh, Phil Leonetti. Okay. So the Philadelphia crowd, there was a crew in Jersey, in Newark. It was down neck Newark. 
And the guy that was in charge was Tony Bananas. Now, they talked about him killing Angelo Bruno. Mm -hmm. So his name was Tony Bananas Caponegro. I knew everybody from, from Newark because I'm from Newark. So I knew that whole crew. Uh, I knew a zillion guys. Uh, or vice versa, they knew me because uh, guys that um, heard about the gambling machine business they jumped on it, so we had everybody from every crew, from every street corner throughout the entire city of New York, suburbs, and so forth and so forth. It was a huge, huge, huge business that I created. And this is this is still in the 80s, 77 on. It went from 77 and then until <clears throat> I got locked up in 95. I went to jail in 95. 95, so that, that's about the, I think Natalie, did you have any dealings with Joe Merlino or no? No, no. My okay. connection was with Newark, with the Philadelphia Angela Bruns outfit in Newark. The guy Got that it. killed him was Tony, he was the capo regime. He Got was it. the guy that was in charge of Newark. And never anything with Scarfo? I met him one time. Just, okay. he was eating in a restaurant and, one of the kids from Newark said, Gee, you know, we, you know, did, we'd like you to meet uh, Nicky Scarpo. Did, did you get the feeling from him? Like, did you feel no, the spirit? No, I didn't have any. any okay, no. so you didn't have any kind of opinion about it. Okay. The guys that, that were extremely, extremely close, that I was close with, was all the way upstairs on top. Jerry Katina from Newark uh, was my father's partner in the jukebox vending business. Doc Stature, Longies Wilman, Meyer Lansky. Those people I knew. Those were your, okay. So how was Meyer when you met him? What was Meyer like? A gem, a gentleman, a gentleman, and so forth. But that time he had run away and met him in Israel. My father's partner, Doc Stancher. What year was this when you met him in Israel? 1970. September this 1970. When, when he wanted to get citizenship, but they turned him down and didn't give it to him. Is that the time? Yeah. Or, okay. Yeah. 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 He, he went. He 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 knew he was going to be indicted. He ran to Israel. My father's partner. Original partner was Joseph Doc Stancher. Doc Stancher was, uh, he was a genius. Absolutely, what a, what a mind. But Doc Stancher accepted exile from the United States in a deal that he worked out with Edward Bennett Williams, the great lawyer from Washington, and Robert Kennedy. He actually made the deal with Kennedy to accept exile from the United States. He was in Israel. He told me on one Saturday afternoon, it was Saturday morning, you'll be here for lunch, for Shabbat. And just, he never told me why. And all of a sudden, Meyer Lansky walked in. Meyer Lansky sat down next to me. I was a kid. I was going to go to Africa the next month to run slot machines for a backdoor ballet deal in Lagos, Nigeria, with a couple of Arab gangsters, and they needed a manager. So, um, Meyer Lansky, um, oh, they were very polite, very cordial. And he tells me, listen, son, he says, they made me bigger than Al Capone. That's why I'm here in Israel. Because if I go to trial, uh, I'm going to do life. And all it was, was just a, um, uh, income tax case. At the end of the meal, uh, it, it, by the way, he says, you know, uh, your father was my very, very dear friend. He was with us in the Riviera Hotel in Nirvana. He, he reminded me of my father. Mm. Same style, low-key, 
quiet gentleman. They took me off to the corner and they were concerned at that particular point about Mr. Katina, who was my father's partner that bought out Doc Stature after Doc went to, went to LA, he opened up the Moulin Rouge. And then he was at the, at the hotel Flamingo and Sands and so forth and so forth. They were concerned about Jerry Katina, right? Years, it took me years later to figure out all of the concerns. It was all about the rake-off. Who's in charge of the rake-off? Because once Meyer Lansky left Florida to go to Israel, who was in charge of the, of the, uh, uh, the, the money if the, coming into, we used to go to Miami. Meyer would have it packaged up and it would be picked up by a fellow by the name of Sylvain Fetterman from Geneva, Switzerland, who was, I think, somehow or another related to Tibor Rosenbaum, who was the owner of a bank called the International Banque de Credit, which was the bank that banked both the Rakoff for the mob and was a Mossad bank. It, 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 worked, it worked both for both the... Uh, for both organizations. Interesting. Now, Lansky's strength, when you hear about Lan Lansky's strength, you hear a lot of different things. You know, the whole uh, uh, scene you see in the movie Mobsters with Christian Slater where, you know, Meyer wouldn't take, you know, he, he would always fight back. He didn't know how to fight, but he was feisty. He was willing to fight. He was not afraid of you. And then he's portrayed as a guy that's very methodical, very business, very strong, but, you know, low-key, didn't need the attention. He was a... What else would you say was some of his strengths? I mean, I'm sure your dad told you stories about Meyer, who he probably had more dealings with. So him. Meyer Lansky used to come to Newark all the time. Yeah. Um, and stayed at the old uh, Riviera Hotel. It was a Riviera Hotel, actually, on Clinton Avenue. And um, he, was, he was just a low-key low guy, all right? Um, dressed conservative, thought conservative. And he was a patriotic American and a patriotic Jew. Very strong on the question of Jewish identity. In terms of theology, whether he believed in God, probably not. He, didn't, he wasn't a practicing Jew. He was a nationalistic Jew. All those guys participated in supply of weapons and arms at a time that the Neutrality Act was invoked by Truman stating that it was a criminal act to supply weapons and arms to Palestine, either to the Arabs or to the Jews. Our guys played a significant role in buying up weapons and arms, uh, um, surplus weapons and arms post-World War II. And we had all the shipping connections at the port of New York through Frank Costello and Albert Anastasia, so that the longshoremen cooperated with the Jews, with the Zionists, to ship weapons and arms. Meyer Lansky and Longies Wilman played significant roles. They went out of their way constantly. So uh, the, the value system of these people, uh, Meyer Lansky would not be in the dirty business. The dirty business being prostitution, uh, or drugs. Who was? If he wasn't, who was? Just about everybody. Really? It was, yeah, it was, it was so, it was um, even so. Even his colleagues, even, even the different families. Yeah, yeah. It, it, and my guy was 
Louis Streaky, and he used to say every time, every week, we'd meet at a, at a delicatessen called Carpens in, in Passaic. It'd be a round table, and everybody was at the table. And his message is, gentlemen, we're not in that business, all right? Gentlemen, we're not in that business, and gentlemen, we're not in that business. I think everybody at the table was at that business except myself. Got it. In some form or another, Patrick comes to me and says, to, or I'm not saying Patrick, I'm saying, let's say, Mr. 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 John Smith comes to me and says to me, finance me, give me 25,000, right? Don't ask any questions. You'll, you'll have back 50% uh, on your money in 30 days, right? Please don't ask me who, what, when, where, how. So everybody Got in some form or another was connected to that business. Who trusted who? Like who, uh, how much of a role did trust play or how much of a role did uh, intuition play? Like what, you know, the main gangsters who are sitting there some, sometimes saying, I know this guy's full of shit, he's lying to me to my face, but I still have to figure out a way to do business with him. What mattered more, trust, intuition, street smart? How would you put it? A combination of all factors. Okay. Combination, a combination of all factors. Um, um, you, you, all your interviews, your guys tell you, trust nobody. Every, that was a common thread through all your interviews with the fellas that we mentioned before. It's very difficult to trust in that world. Somebody says, what is the definition of the word friend? All right, friend is a sacred word. We've got two guys. I'm going to take this bottle of water. I'm going to take this bottle of water. I'm one guy and my best friend is this guy, all right? We get nailed. We get brought down to police headquarters, all right? They put me in one room, and they put my best friend in another room. And then they say to me, Sugarman, that guy over there, uh, Moshe, Moshe's your best friend. I say, he's a great guy. Well, that great guy is talking. He's got diarrhea of the mouth. He's burying you. So you know what? You better be a smart guy. You better bury him before he buries you. And if I'm smart, I'll say to him, gentlemen, Kishmir Tuchus, which in translated Yiddish means kiss my ass. And if my friend Moshe is really my friend, he says Kishmir Tuchus, right? That's the definition of friendship. All the rest is all bullshit. Guys, hug, kiss, embrace, going to have espresso coffee, we're going to have a drink together, and so forth and so forth. And then what happens when the, your, your best friend says to you, come on, we're going to take a ride tonight, we're going to see somebody, all right? And he's walking you right into your death. Michael Francis, it tells that story, how scared he was to go anywhere and so forth and so forth. He knows. Very smart guy, very, very, very talented, very interesting, very, very interesting. And he tells exactly the way it is. So uh, the other factor that you didn't mention, you mentioned intuition, you mentioned smarts and trust and all that. Providence. Elaborate. Providence, God. Sometimes in life, we don't know where it's coming from, all right? It's saved because I had a, an attempt on my life one time, two times. The first, second time uh, was by Providence, but 
my guy that I was supposed to meet in the morning, who never was on time, that particular morning was on time, and he spotted two guys that were dressed in uniform, long coats, caps, and sure enough, the guy shot up the stairs, and uh, the, the, the truth of the matter was, why was he there that particular morning, 364 days a year, never on time? This particular day, he was there on time and was and experienced enough to say, those two guys, they're here to, they're here to do you more than just harm. Providence. So trust, intuition, um, street, and on top of that, providence. Um, you know, uh, uh, in the in the in the mob world, when you think about the Jewish mob, you think about, you know, the Italian mob. What good did the mob do, and what bad did the mob do? Obviously, when you think about the bad, we know a lot of the bad. We read a lot about the bad. But you know, there, there's those that also will say it did some good. What would you say the good it did to the uh, to, to the community? Um, well, on the on the the local level, uh, if you look at uh, somebody tried to rape my sister, as an example. Thank God it didn't happen. But let's say, for example, my, my, my father, I can't even begin to tell you how many times Shuggy was called in the middle of the night, Shuggy, can I come see? I got a problem. Uh, such and such, the union, this, that, and so forth and so forth. My father was with Jerry Katina. So next day, ah, my aunt. Is a good story. My aunt Shirley, my mother's sister, she becomes a widow and she's got a uh, supermarket up in Bombbrook, New Jersey. A couple of tough guys come in, bully her, and Mrs. Goldberg, bah, 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 you're going to do this, that. And she got scared. She called my mother. Mother calls me. My father was already passed away. And she says, take care of that. All right. So I go to see Abe Green. Abe sat there. He said, tell, tell Aunt Shirley to come comes to the office, and she tells him the problem, that he got bullied, this, that, and there was a union. It was, Abe says, what? Nice seeing you, Shirley. Take care of yourself, sweetheart. And Shirley says to me, no, what is, what's going on here? And he says, go home. Let me go home. I came here to get the thing resolved. And Shirley, go home. Sure enough, the next morning, she couldn't walk into her supermarket. It looked like a flower shop. There were bouquets and, <laughs> and all of a sudden, you know, baskets of fruit and this, that, and so forth. And two guys show up with the hats. And Mrs. Goldberg, we never knew who you were. We apologize. And if you ever need anything, you come to see us and so forth and so forth. That's a million times that story of you went to the powers to be, because if you went through the system, the system did shit for you. Somebody tried to rape the guy's sister, all right? He goes to the bosses. Bosses say, oh, he'll take care of that. And sure enough, you know, in the old days, that guy that was an attempted rapist, he never see him again, all right? It was taken care of. Now, if you went through the system and the, the prosecution, the lawyers and this and so, it's an expediency. You get justice, instant justice, providing, of course, and they bring that out in the movie The Godfather, mm. which is very accurate to show that you get expediency as far as the justice is concerned. Whereas if you go 
Civil cases. You're a sewer guy, all right? Guy screwed you for money. You're going to go sue him. How many years is it going to take before it never you lose the case? Two to four years. With luck, you get two to four years, yeah. all right? You're unlucky. You might be uh, 10 years waiting for a, a resolution because it's going through the system. So this, so you asked an excellent question. The, the benefit of, of the mob is that it cuts through all the bullshit, gets right down to the basics. What's the ugly? What's the ugly? I mean, I've read, I've seen, I've interviewed, I've, I've, I've uh, done a lot, of, a lot of research on that. What was the ugliest part? Can I tell you did? who the biggest organized crime is in the entire world? Who? The government. Every government is the worst organized criminal enterprise on the face of the earth. These guys here, they're midgets compared to the government. Except that the government, look it, the government made me, oh, he's the boss of the slot machine business, all right? Uh, Sugarman, he's the boss of the slot machine business. Right? Terrible thing. Oh, my God, he's organized crime. He play his slot machines. You're, 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 fund, you're funding organized crime. Okay, good. I, turn on your television set and you watch on television, all right? Guys playing in their living room on a computer, the same slot machines that Myron Sugarman operated in bodegas 20 years ago, all right? But now you can sit in your living room and you can go broke playing the same slot machines that Myron Sugarman. But this is good because this is government and then we're going to have taxes and the taxes are going to be good. It's going to help people and so forth and so forth. Atlantic City is still a shit house after all those years from 1978 that all that money that's going to be used for the benefit of blah, 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 blah. It's all bullshit. Government is your biggest criminal organization on the face of the earth, but it's a necessary evil, all right? Many years ago, my father's partner, and I explained to you that bought out Doc Statue, become the acting boss of the Genovese crime family, Jerry Cadena. Underrated, understated, the most brilliant man, one of the most brilliant men I ever met in my life. And at desk like this, he would be sitting reading the Manchester Guardian, the Christian Science Monitor, Wall Street Journal, and New York Times. Self-educated man. My father used to say, Mr. Katina, he could run the Pentagon or General Electric. And with the passing of years, I come to the conclusion that man could have been the President of the United States of America. He had such a skill in administrating of people talent hmm. and intuition and instinct, the genius about himself, all right? At the party in 1991, September 13th, 1991, I'm at Almanyachi's home in Fort Lauderdale, uh, Florida, for his wife's 70th birthday. Very dear friend of my father's and mother's. And uh, he tells me, the old man wants you to be at the party tonight. And I'm honored, and of course, and Mr. Katina walks in, everybody goes, oh, Jerry, how are you? Good to see you. He says to me, get over here, sit down. And then he, of course, he's super comfortable with me because he can talk to me like he can talk to nobody else. And then he says to me, I was just another chief operating officer of just another corporation. And I never forgot those words, right? I was just another chief operating officer. Makes sense. Of, a, of course it yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. All right? Kept peace, 
We resolved problems, labor, unions, yeah. made everything, made yeah. everything work, made it all work. So it's so interesting when you, although which, which one of the five families was the best ran, tightly ran, money-making, feared, which of the five was that? Well, at different intervals, it depended upon the leadership. For example, Mr. Katina, my goodness gracious, that man, he could have easily been the president of the United States of America. The Bally deal, okay. Bally Manufacturing, Bally Slot Machine, mm -hmm. Bally um, mm -hmm. Hotels yep. and so forth. Okay, yep. okay. My, my father's company, Runyon Sales Company, was the official distributor for Bally Manufacturing Company before the slot machine business. They made slots before the war, but my father's company becomes the distributors for Bally in 1946. Uh, and they made a machine called the Bally Bingo. It was a subterfuge gambling device, looked like a pinball machine. It was a phenomenal machine. Bally Bingo. Bingo, Bally Bingo. Bally Bingo Pinball. That machine looked like it had a hand that came out of the machine and grabbed the money out of your pocket. Interesting. Uh, it, was a, it was the most seductive piece of equipment on the face of the huh. earth. All right. And Robert Kennedy knocks it out in 1992. All right. He says that machine is the same thing as a slot machine. And he makes it uh, and amends what was known as the Johnson Act. Passes a law called the Eastland Act, 19... 1963, stating that a Bally Bingo machine, multiple coin slot pinball machine, is a gambling device and cannot be shipped interstate. Right? And knocks Bally out of the box. Bally goes into foreclosure. The manager of that company was Bill O'Donnell. The original owner was Ray Maloney. Brilliant man. And the new manager, or the manager that ran the company, was Bill O'Donnell. The Maloney family uh, was no longer involved with the business. They come up with a hopper. Somebody invents a hopper system that takes a slot machine from a mechanical device that only pays out 20 coins, and it's going to put in a hopper system that's going to spit out hundreds of coins, thousands of coins. In fact, it's going to spit out eventually dollars and something. Okay. Bill O'Donnell calls my father. He says, Sugar, could you introduce me to Bill O'Donnell? He says, sure. Goes to, uh, go, could you introduce, I'm sorry, could you introduce me to Jerry Katina? My father says to Jerry Katina, Bill O'Donnell from Valley. You never met him. He wants to talk. He's got a proposition. He says, tell him to come out. Comes and he sits in the office in Springfield, New Jersey, in a matter of two and a half, three hours. Jerry Katina hammers a deal where they take the company out of foreclosure, all right, and goes on to be Bally Manufacturing Company. Jerry Katina, the machine was so great, all right. Jerry Katina understood in a matter of seconds that this was going to revolutionize the slot machine business. He calls the people from Emprise in Buffalo, which was Jewish family that owned all the baseball concessions and so forth. He gets money from them. He calls Sam Klein in Cleveland, Ohio, big cigarette machine operator, smart businessman. He had that kind of connection that he could call people around the country and hammer a deal together. It took two hours to hammer the deal, get the money up, take the, take the factory out of foreclosure and become Bally Manufacturing Company. Then he calls up his friend Dino, uh, Dean Martin in, in Vegas and he says, to, he says uh, I'm sending you Abe Green. 
introduce him to all the hotel owners. Mm. And that's how Bally Machines get wow. desolate. And in a matter of, they own 95% of the slot machine business in Las Vegas, Nevada, for years and years and years and years. Man. So when you talk to me about who Families. was, who was yeah. which, which crew, Jerry Katina was, was, was a phenomenal. Now you had some guys that were just Paul Castellano, really, well, Sammy the Bull told you. The man should not have been a mob boss. He distanced himself. He was too legitimate. He was making money too legitimately. And he didn't have that human touch. The guy that should have been was uh, O'Neill. It should have been, according to Sammy the Bull and John Gotti, was the guy that really should have been. Uh, but again, um, Carlo Gambino was genius. From what I what I was told, as far as the streets are concerned, you have to have leadership quality to be a boss, to be a mob boss. Did you ever do anything with Sonny Francis, or no? No, nothing with Sonny. No. And and uh, uh, did you ever think that uh, Sammy uh, uh, could have one day been a boss, or no? You saw Sammy as an underboss to Gotti, and that was the relationship they had. I don't think I had enough experience with him in order to make that judgment. Okay, fair enough. If I judged everybody against Jerry Katina, nobody was qualified. Jerry Katina, you put yeah. him at the top. So Jerry's your goat. Jerry's the greatest boss you've ever seen. He was, a, he was a, a superb. Okay. Superb. Discipline. We call them a, a, an iron fist and a silk glove. Was he more a mobster, an earner, a leader? What was he? Everything. He was, he, he, no, he was no mobster. So he wasn't the one that was going out taking people out? And, but maybe in his youth, for sure. Okay. Nobody, nobody fooled him. But I used to see Manchester Guardian, Christian Science yeah. Monitor, and so forth. Yeah. Self-educated man, tremendous contacts throughout the entire United States. He rose up the ladder as far as success is concerned. Suit, tie, and acted accordingly, all right? A gentleman, uh, uh, there was no such thing as, um, you couldn't, a legitimate, if you had a legitimate need, you were a good guy, you went to him for a favor, all right? Through, through the ranks, you yeah. got the favor done. Again, I'm gonna ask you one question. I'm curious to know if you have any other kind of version of story to this, John F. Kennedy assassination. I've heard eight, now I've interviewed 20 people on the topic of John F. K you know, JFK assassination. What do you know, the involvement of Ruby, the mob, the CIA, LBJ, what do you know? So, so Jimmy Blue Eyes tells me this story. Okay. I used to meet with him once a month uh, downstairs in the Hilton Hotel. So I said to him one time, I said, Jimmy, this kid, uh, Harvey Oswald, he says, we have better fucking shooters than Lee Harvey Oswald. It's all bullshit. We had nothing to do with him. I says, but tell me the story. He says, okay. Joe Kennedy, all right? Joe Kennedy, the nicest thing you could have said about Joe Kennedy is that he hated Italians more than he hated Jews. Couldn't stand Italians. Could, <laughs> he couldn't stand Jews. So um, he wanted Jack Kennedy to become president. All right? He reaches out to Peter Lawford, his uh, son-in-law. You were friendly with that little skinny guinea, Frank Sinatra. Uh, we need a favor. What's the favor? You go to him, you're part of the Rat Pack. Tell him we need Cook County, Chicago. We need West Virginia, the unions, in order to get 
Kennedy elected. Um, Chicago. Um, Dewey? No, no, no. Dewey was New York, the prosecutor. No. Uh, the Irish, uh, Daly. Daly. Richard Daly. Uh, Irish Catholic uh, Democrat. Uh, Sam Mooney. All right. They get together. We're going to get this guy elected. All right. Now, um, he gets elected. All right. Here's the, the, here's the mentality. You came to me for a favor. Your man got elected. It was me that got him elected. Dugabisha, questa uno nostra. Our guy got him elected. Oh, oh, we got a claim on you. You owe us big time. Joe Kennedy says, "What's happening?" He said, "Well, these Italians are by the way. You fuck with these Italians. You got a girlfriend by the name of Judith Ethner Campbell. She's between you and Sam Moody. You're sharing a girlfriend. You're sending messages to him. He's sending messages to you. Quit that shit. Where's your, your brother Robert? Come here. Come here, Bobby. You're going to be the United States Attorney General, all right? Because you're mean and vicious like the old man. Your brother Jack, all he wants to do is screw everybody, all right?" <laughs> So you're going to get rid of these Italians because they are a pain in the ass. They're a pain in my Irish ass. Okay. He opens up the crime, uh, uh, passes a bill called the Omnibus, which is the preface to the eventual law called the uh, um, uh, RICO. All right. He has a department within the state, within the United States Department of Justice, Anti-mafia, uh, anti all right? It starts with Robert Kennedy. Now, in the mind of the Italians, they say, wait a minute, I spent the cloud. Wait, what are you doing here? We got you elected, now you're going to go after us. You son of a bitch, you ba -ba 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 Kennedy bastards. I told you you never could trust an Irishman. That Irish son of a bitch, and so forth and so forth. Now, I used to go to Dallas, Texas. Black pinball machines from an old friend of my dad by the name of Abe Sussman. Oh, and Abe was Abe was the connection Jew in in Dallas. So Dallas always answered to Chicago. Chicago, hmm. everybody that crew in Dallas and well everything west of uh, up until Vegas. Vegas was open. Jackson, Chicago. Jackson, answered Chicago. to Chicago. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. if some Jew from Chicago got himself jammed up in Dallas. They used to call Abe and say, Abe, we got one of your Jews here. Got it. Get him on an airplane, get him the hell out of here. Yeah. All right. That was the system in Dallas, Texas. And that explains how Jack Rubenstein, Jack Ruby, was in the, the Dallas Police Department because he used to buy coffee, hang around. He was low level, but he was a low level Jewish gangster from Chicago. All right. Now, it raises the whole question. What the hell was Jack Ruby doing in the Dallas Police Department and killing uh, Lee Harvey Oswald? So, where it concerns legends and myths, all right, we'll sit here from now until the cows come home because the same stories over and over, who killed Longies Wilman, uh, who killed this one, who killed that one, and so forth, who killed Marilyn Monroe, 
If you weren't there, if you weren't involved in a hit, you don't know. By the way, Carlo Gambino was very smart. He used to send two guys to kill and two guys to do the burial. Why? So the two guys that killed never knew where the body was. Yeah. So the two guys who killed never knew where the body was? Right. What? He, he, you, I'm going to send you to do the killing, and I'm going to send him over here to do the burying. So that you can never say, I, I'll take you where the, where, where the, where the body is. No so body. you killed, you brought the body to him. He took the body and buried it. Yeah. So you don't, he knows you killed them, but you don't know. No, he don't know that. He don't know that. He's, you go to such and such a destination, pick up a body and bury it. Okay. But he doesn't know who killed them. Of course not. All right. Why was that? What was he doing that? Is it too? Because you know, without, the, without knowledge of the body, there's no, no one's ever going to know. There's no, there's no crime. Nobody, no crime. So meaning no one really knows what happened. I mean, there's all these stories. That, so that was exactly, yeah. exactly. It's all speculation. But Abe Sussman, the old friend of my dad's, told me that Jack Ruby was just a knock-around guy that ran a few strip clubs in Dallas, Texas. Right? But he was close enough in the police to... What police department has a, a schmegeggy like uh, uh, Jack Ruby hanging in his place with, with a pistol? So that, that oh, of course, added fuel to the... Any, any, uh, any unique story you heard about Hoffa? Again, I've heard, uh, I've heard many of them. Is there any unique story you have on Hoffa? Um, too many stories. So I, 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 the, the movie... Meaning who killed him? Meaning who killed Hoffa? No, no, uh, okay. no, no yeah. but I, I, I did go to see a, a hitman by the name of Heshi K.O. Koningsberg, Harold K.O. Koningsberg. He was up in Attica. He was in his 50, he was in his 46th year when I went up to see him. Right? And I asked him, I says, because he was a known killer, stone cold killer. Um, did you, you have anything to do with the. Uh, um, Alpha. Alpha. None of your fucking business. I said, okay, I'm sorry, Heshi. He says, but I will tell you something. He says, I'm the guy that was involved in supplying weapons and arms to uh, Israel. And I'm here with a journalist by name, an award-winning journalist by name is David Samuels. All right, this is a cute story. So uh, Heshi, he's there 46 years. He says to me, um, I'm the guy that told Mushy Diane. Mushy Diane, I said, Mushy, we're on a boat in um, Marseille, in Marseille, France, all right? And there's going to be guns and weapons. I'm going to just give this to Haganah. I'm going to give this to Ergun. And I'm giving this to the Stern Gang, all right? And if you say one fucking word, I'm going to blow your balls off. Do you understand? And he says... Years later, 1940, 1950, he says, years later, this was, this was 19, 1947, and he says, 19, was it 1947, what the hell was it? Oh, 1947-48, he says, I run into Jabotinsky, Fucking job, good job, Harold, good job, terrific. And I says to David uh, uh, Samuels, don't you say a fucking word, Jabotinsky died in 1970. <laughs> 
So guys would put themselves in situations that I was here, I was there, I was this, I was that, and so forth and so forth. Too many stories. So maybe Michael is right when you said he can't trust anyone in that world. You know, Michael, he, he was brilliant. Yeah. My, Michael, Michael's interview, genius. Yeah. Michael, Michael is, uh, he may be one of the best communicators in the marketplace. He's unique. You know yeah, he's, he's very, unique very unique. In his own he, way. Yeah. yeah, very unique. Well, listen, I really enjoyed it. I'm so glad you made it out here. And I know, you know, the, the occasion, it kind of worked out for everybody. We have a legendary person here with us as well, Streaky, that's sitting to my right, to your left. And my grandson. Yes, but I really enjoyed talking to you. I appreciate you for coming out. Folks, if you're watching this, we're going to put the link below. We're going to put the link below to Myron's book, The Chronicles of the Last Jewish Gangster, from Meyer to Myron. The link will be below uh, to order on Amazon. And with that being said, thanks for coming out. Appreciate you once again. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you very it much. Nice. It was nice. And uh, I watched all your videos and I got that phone call the other day. I said to myself, wow, I'm going to be a superstar. <laughs> I'm going to have groupies. I'm going to have women you're who want to take, women who wanna take selfies with me. Yeah. Oh my goodness I told you, you're no longer going to need Tinder just because of I Tinder. Oh, so yeah, I'm going to have to walk around with bigger than, my cane's not going to no be No more big swipe rights. I just want I'm you to have no more swipe rights for I'm your grandpa. Have to, I'm going to have to walk around with a baseball bat <laughs> to protect myself. All those women. Thank you, Patrick. I appreciate that. Nice Thank you. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you. Jewish mob, huh? Completely different story and angle about what he had to say about the history of Jewish mob, how powerful they were before 25% of inmates. Very interesting history of the Jewish mob that uh, Myron shared with us. If you enjoyed this interview, I'm curious to know your thoughts. Comment below. Put a thumbs up. Subscribe to the channel. And last but not least, two other interviews I want you to watch. One is with Sammy DeBolgravano. We talked about Sammy a lot. And the other one is Phil Leonetti. He did an interview with me and he asked for the camera to be off when I was not, you know, for, to not show his face. It's a very interesting interview with Phil Leonetti, the former underboss of the Philadelphia crime family. Click over here to watch that. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.